All right, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 4. That'll be our jumping off point again this morning. Maybe I should have had you guys stand. I'm just looking out there, and you know, it's warm in here a little bit, and there's rain coming down outside, and I can see the yawns already starting. <clears throat> see, Chuck? Yeah, there, you didn't have to. Who, me? You didn't have to demonstrate is what I was saying. <clears throat> we'll be all right today, right? We'll stick with it, and we'll be able to stay focused. It's been a good week. I trust you've had a good week as well. Uh, lots of gone, lots gone on. Boy, 87 was on Tuesday. Is that what I saw as far as the temperature? That's a little early for that kind of kind of heat wave coming through. But then with the rain, uh, things are greening up. It's looking more and more like spring. I'm thankful for that. Uh, Matthew chapter five and uh, verse four. We'll read that here in just a moment. To catch us up to speed just a little bit. Over the past few weeks, we've been doing some house cleaning. <laughs> And I can say that physically is, to start with. We've been going through the church. We've been cleaning th- stuff up. Uh, there's things that have happened that you're not even going to notice. I'm not even going to say it out loud what it was. Um, but you'll, you might see it if you look closely. The ladies probably will notice. Uh, just sprucing some things up, taking care of some details, tossing some things that need to be tossed and cleaning up here and there. And so physically, it's been a good thing. Uh, I think we're at a point where we need to do some of that. But we're also doing some house cleaning spiritually, aren't we? going through an examination process, asking God to look into our hearts and to cleanse us and to purify us, that he'd point out areas that need to be cleaned up and changed so that we can be better servants for Christ. We're asking God to help us respond like Isaiah did in chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am undone. And to have that same response. Last week, we looked at this New Testament parallel in Matthew chapter 5, and it really is similar to what Isaiah went through here in Isaiah 6. Isaiah repented and he confessed his sin from the heart and God brought cleansing and he brought comfort and he cleared his guilt. In Matthew 5, 4, Jesus makes this paradoxical statement. We talked about paradoxes last week. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. As the title of the message, happy are the sad. It's a paradox. It's hard for us to understand it. But Jesus is stating here in axiom form the reality of what we saw in Isaiah's real life experience. We saw it in Isaiah's life, and now Jesus is saying much the same thing. Isaiah's encounter with God modeled the truth that we see here in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We saw last week that the word mourning is an intense word. It's one that we associate with sorrow and grief. In fact, the word used here is the most intense word for mourning that the New Testament has to offer. It's a strong word, and it's often used in context of mourning over someone that's passed away. The death of a loved one. And so when God says, I want you to mourn over your sin in the same way you grieve the death of a loved one, that's some pretty vivid imagery, isn't it? It helps us to understand the depths that we need to mourn for our sin. But also it's a good reminder that God doesn't leave us in that position for very long. He quickly follows that mourning with comfort. And he provides comfort to our grieving hearts through divine forgiveness. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We're going to talk about this a little more over the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at what mourning is not today. And the next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at what it really is and what it looks like. Um, And when when you hear the word mourning over the next few messages, I want you to think of repentance. I really think the two concepts are very very close to being synonymous. They're so closely intertwined that it's hard to separate one from the other. It might be that the idea of mourning is that which precipitates repentance. It's what starts the ball rolling. Um, But really, when you study it out, they're so close together that it's hard to separate the two. 
You know, as we work through this series on introspection, it would be nice if we could just skip right to the comfort part, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think all of us would prefer the cleansing and comfort more than the repentance in the morning. It's hard to look inside. It sometimes can be painful to look within and see really what's going on. It would be nice to skip right to the end and just avoid that discomfort, but that's not the way it works. One follows the other, and in fact, one cannot happen without the other. The only way to true comfort in regards to our sin is to biblically mourn over that sin. And since that's the case, I think we'd be wise to look a little little more closely at what mourning or repentance really means. What does it really look like? Uh, Because they are so closely tied together, uh, we need to understand uh, what they are and and what they mean. And what I'm getting at here is there are some concepts that are very similar to repentance, but they fall short of the reality. And we need to make sure that what we're doing is truly repenting and not not settling for one of the other counterfeits that Satan would bring our way. So today I want us to look at what mourning is not. I want to see see four examples of false repentance. I think this will help us as we look at the lives and the examples of others in Scripture and see what it doesn't look like. And that will help us further understand what it does look like next week. Okay? We all on the same page? Know where we're going here this morning? I'm saying that for my benefit maybe as much as yours. Uh, Let's start with the first one. Number one, mourning is not sorrow over the consequences of sin. And that should go kind of without saying. And maybe I should say it this way. Mourning is not only sorrow over the consequences of sin. I don't think it's wrong to be sorry for the consequences. But if that's the extent of my sorrow, then I've not truly repented. Let's look at Genesis chapter 4. We'll come up with a biblical example for each one of these. And I trust that the illustrations will help. Genesis chapter 4, in context, we realize that Adam and Eve have sinned in chapter 3. They've um, plunged the world into sin at this point. They've got two sons now. Uh, Cain has been born first, then Abel followed after that. And in verse 3, it says, And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. So Cain and Abel both bring their offerings before the Lord. And notice what happens next. It says, And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. So there's an offering that's being given both by Cain and by Abel, and God looks down and he has respect unto Abel's but not to Cain's. One he accepts and the other he rejects. And I'm not going to get into all the whys and wherefores about uh, why he rejected one and accepted the other. There's a lot of thoughts we could get into, but that's not the point of the message this morning. The point is how Cain responded to what God did in his life. We'll see that in the next verse, um, or the end of that verse. It says, and Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. That's another way of saying he was ticked. (laughs) He got angry. Cain did not appreciate the fact that God rejected his offering. And, and I don't know all the reasons for it. You know, he's, he's the older child and God rejects him but accepts his younger brothers. Maybe that rubbed him the wrong way. Maybe there was some shame. Maybe there was some resentment. Maybe there was some jealousy. Maybe it stung his pride a little bit. All these things might be factors. But the bottom line was Cain got angry. And I love the fact that God just doesn't leave him in his anger or punish him right there for his anger. Notice what God does. Look in verse 6. The Lord said unto Cain, why are you angry? Why are you wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If you do well, shall thou not be accepted? Cain, it's okay. Just come back and do right. Offer either the right sacrifice or offer it with the right motives. Get your heart right and then come back and let's try this again. God's patient and he's merciful and he tries to draw Cain back in. That's a wonderful picture of how God is. 
But Cain doesn't respond to God reaching back out. And in verse 8, it said, Cain talked with Abel, his brother. The idea there is that he lured him out into the field. It wasn't just, let's have a conversation. He had evil intentions in mind. And he talked to Abel, his brother, and he said, I know, not, or, he brought him out into a field, and Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he slew him. We see the first murder recorded in history. Cain killing his younger brother, and then he hides the body. Well, we can hide things, but we can't hide things from God. And God sees it in verse 9, the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, Why hast, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. God confronts Cain. He asks him the question, where is your brother? And then he gives him the consequences for his actions. This idea of being cursed from the earth is the idea that ground wasn't going to produce for him anymore. And that's a tough consequence if you get your living by farming. And you till the ground and all of a sudden it's not going to produce anymore. Then God goes on to say later in the passage that he'd be a fugitive and a vagabond. But I want you to see here is Cain's response. Look down at verse 13. And Cain said unto the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Is there sorrow going on in Cain's heart? Yes, there is. But what is the sorrow for? It's for the consequences. It's for what God was doing in response to his sin. So let's look quickly here at some evidences of false repentance that we see here in this passage. What, what are the, the hints that tell us that he didn't genuinely repent? Number one, he lied about the location of his brother. God says, Cain, where's your brother? And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> Maybe they were teenagers. That sounds kind of teenager, didn't it? Where's your brother? I have no idea. I don't know. Uh, that's how my kids talked in the youth group. I, when they don't want to answer, girls, you do that still back there a little bit? Ask your mom once in a while. Does it come out that way? Um, you understand what I'm saying? He just, he just said, I don't, I don't have any idea. Well, he knew full well where his brother was. He'd killed him and he'd buried him. And so he lies outright. I don't know. Second, he responded with arrogance and with sarcasm. Notice what he says. I mean, he's, re he's interacting with the God of the universe. And you can hear the undertones in what he's saying here, right? Where is Abel thy brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> the sarcasm, the snippy response, there's arrogance in there as well. God, I don't know. It wasn't my day to watch him. Why are you coming to me about this? Okay. Does that sound like one who's truly mourning over their sin? No, I don't think so. We see next that he argued about the consequences. God, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Not my sin, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Was he mourning? I believe he was. But what was he mourning about? He was mourning over getting caught. He was mourning over the consequences, not for the sin. I think we can all remember times in our lives where we were more sorry about the consequences than we were about the sin. Times as a young person when my dad forced me to apologize for something that I did, I didn't really feel sorry about what I did, but I was really sorry I had to go say I was sorry. You know, I was more sorry about that side of it. And we've got to be careful in that area, because even as we get older, we can struggle more with the consequences than the sin itself. And so maybe we could say it this way, if I'm more sorry about the consequences than about the sin itself, it's a sign I've not truly repented of my sin. Number two, another example of false repentance or a false mourning. Number, one, or number two, mourning is not vain repentance. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, back to the New Testament. You're probably saying, Mark, if you'd order these better, we wouldn't have to flip back and forth. That's okay. 
Flipping back and forth keeps you awake, gives your hands something to do. Matthew, <coughs> in chapter 6. And let's pick it up in verse 16. And there's a connection here that I think we'll see that's not maybe obvious from the start. But Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, wash your face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, which is in secret. And thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. So not even really focus on the passage here to start with. Uh, let me just share a thought here. Sorrowful mourning and fasting are directly related. There's a connection between grief and fasting, and not using fasting in a spiritual context. Uh, when the body experiences intense grief, it's not really interested in food. Have you been in that situation before, where you were grieving so much over something that had happened that you just really weren't hungry? Food just didn't interest you. Maybe you're helping somebody else through the grief process and they just won't eat and you almost have to force them or encourage them to take some sustenance because you know they need it. And so when we're sorrowful, we don't really feel like eating. And, and there's, a, there's a connection here. People in deep affliction eat very little. And this physical connection, I think, carries over to the spiritual realm. When my soul is deeply burdened about sin, food isn't going to appeal either. And so fasting, this idea of fasting, became, uh, it became the way believers expressed their sorrow over sin. That's the intent behind it. And so he's talking about fasting here, but what was the purpose of that fasting? To demonstrate their repentance. So that's the connection to repentance that we see here in this passage. So how were the Pharisees now practicing this? Well, they were honoring the external but neglecting the internal. Remember what we talked about last week, how, how true mourning, true sorrow starts on the inside and then it comes out. Here they were starting on the outside. They put on a sullen and sad and gloomy appearance. They wanted to make it look on the outside that they were truly sorrowful over their sin. It says they disfigured their faces. That doesn't mean they, they actually harmed themselves. It's the idea of not washing or looking unkempt or even sometimes putting ashes upon their face to show how sorry they were for their sin. And so they'd act mournful and dismal on the outside to make it look like they'd been fasting in great sorrow over their sin. What was the point? This was only an act. And how do we know that? Because Matthew calls them hypocrites. They were just actors on a stage. They were pretending to mourn so others could see their professed piety and say, wow, aren't you spiritual? It was all about the outside and the affirmation from other people. And folks, this isn't true mourning. And I think we all understand that this morning. It's empty and it's fake. It's external, it's not internal. True biblical mourning affects the inside first and then the outside, not the other way around. It's a deep inner agony that's so intense that it can't be concealed. And so if I'm more worried about the outward appearance and the inward condition, if I'm more concerned about what other people think than what God thinks, I'm not truly repenting. It's a false perspective. All right, let's look at number three. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel in chapter 15. It's ironic, but this is one of the chapters that we're reading in our scripture reading this week. And actually today, I think, is 1 Samuel 15 and 16. So if you haven't got to it yet, as you read it later today, this will sound very familiar to you uh, as you look at it. Let's look at the events of the story. And we'll pick it up in verse 3. It says, God is talking to, to Saul through Samuel. Now go and smite Amalek. 
and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling ox and sheep and camel and donkey, wipe out the entire nation and everything that they have. And we read this on the surface and we say, wow, that's pretty intense. Is God a vindictive God? Why in the world would God command something like this? Back up to verse 2. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did. And I think I put it in your notes there. If not, you can jot it down. Deuteronomy chapter 25. And then you can also back up to another passage before that where we see what happened. Why was God judging Amalek this way? Well, when Israel was working their way through the wilderness, they were marching and they were working along two million strong, probably more people. And as people are working along, the faster ones are going to go faster, the slower ones are going to settle to the back. Who is it that's going to find themselves in the back of the line? The older people that can't go as fast. Those that are sick or not feeling well that day. The younger children, those that can't keep up. And so that's who kind of naturally filters to the back of the line. What did Amalek do? They laid in wait and they waited and they attacked the back of the line. And so they attacked and they killed all the people that were defenseless. Um, and God saw that. And it says here that God remembered. And so God's justice is coming back to play many, many years after that event. But God is linking them together here. So I wanted to point that out. There's a reason that God asked Saul to do this. And so we see God's clear command, and now we'll see Saul's incomplete obedience. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur and is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. That's a significant word. But everything else that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. So we see Saul's obedience, his incomplete obedience. Starts out, he took Agag, the king. Why would he save the king alive? What would be the point of that? Well, the only thing I can come up with is they would parade the king as a, as a symbol of their victory. And he was, he was showing a public display of his conquest. He was feeding his pride. But it says also that he spares the best of the animals. Destroys the worthless, but he saves that which is best. If you look over in, in verse 19, it says, They flew upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, the idea there is to rush in greedily. It was motivated by greed. When they went in and they saw all these animals and they thought, Wow, this is good. We can't destroy these. And so they rushed in greedily, almost in a frenzy. <laughs> and the picture that comes to my mind is like a Black Friday sale at Walmart, and they have a $500 a big screen TV, and they're offering it for $125, but they only have five of them, you know? And so it's a fight to get to the back and get that tag first so that you get the TV. You understand the picture. That's the thought that I see here in this passage. They're rushing in. It's greed-motivated. Greed Not their finest hour. Well, Thirdly, we see God's sorrow in Samuel's grief. I look down in verse 10. It came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. I wish I hadn't done it. He's turned back from following me. He has not performed my commandments. And, and then it grieved Samuel. And notice what he did. He cried unto the Lord all night. We'll come back to that thought a little bit later. God was grieved. Samuel was grieved. And now there's going to be a confrontation. And we see this in chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Samuel rose up early to meet Saul in the morning. In verse 13, Samuel came to Saul, and, and Saul said, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed all the commandment of the Lord. Saul's greeting, his smooth welcome. He's trying to butter Samuel up. 
you got to kind of read into it a little bit here, but he just got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He knows he's guilty. He knows he did wrong. And now here comes Samuel. That's the last person he wanted to see. And so he steps out and says, oh, Samuel, God bless you. I'm so glad that you're here. And you can kind of hear the fake smile on his face, even though it's not real. He's not glad to see Samuel. What do you think? I just defeated the Amalekites. I just did everything that God told me to do. Well, Samuel sees through that. And we see his perceptive question in verse 14. Samuel said, what means then the bleeding of these sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Okay, you did everything God told you to do. What's up with the barnyard noises? <laughs> why, why am I hearing sheep and why am I hearing oxen? Well, Saul spins it a little bit. Look down at verse 15. And this is subtle, but we can catch it. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Did you catch that through there? Everything that indicates disobedience, he's putting that on the people. Everything that indicates obedience, he's pulling it back to himself. Here's what the people did, and they were wrong, but you know, I was involved with destroying everything. But if you look back in verse 9, it says, Saul and the people spared Agag and the animals. So he's being dishonest here in what he is saying. He links the people to the sin and connects himself to the obedience. And then he goes on and says, we really only wanted to worship God. That's our motive for doing it. We can save all these animals and we can offer them as sacrifices to God. What a great motive. Here's what we were trying to do. And so he blames the people to absolve himself of guilt. And he tries to use piety to defend his sin by saying, I did it for the Lord. God, I, I didn't obey exactly, but it's okay because you know, now I can really worship you. I have so many more animals to accomplish that. Well, Samuel now asks, asks a probing question. Look down in verse 17. Samuel says, When you were little in your own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them till they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but flew upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel says he used to be humble. Saul, what happened? Why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you do this evil in God's sight? Well, Saul is now answering. He's, he's dug himself such a hole he can't get away from the story. He's got to keep perpetuating this. And notice what he says next. And Saul said to Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. How can he say that with what he says next? I have gone the way which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the, king, but the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord. He starts by lying outright. He goes, I have obeyed. And I wonder if part of what he's doing here is redefining the terms. He's got to be redefining obedience to say, I have obeyed, because that's not what God told him to do. It's a good reminder to us that incomplete obedience is still disobedience. But in his defense, he now becomes self-incriminating. Because he said, I obeyed, but I saved Agag. <laughs> we destroyed everything, well, except for those things that we should have destroyed, but we didn't. Uh, if you see that in the passage, he's incriminating himself in his defense. And Samuel now comes back in verse 22 with a convicting reply. He says, Samuel said this, Hath the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. 
He says, you know, it's more important to obey than just offer sacrifice. God's more concerned with our obedience than he is with our service. And it's a good reminder for us as well. And then he goes on and calls Saul's sin what it is. Saul, you're going to minimize this. You're going to try to say it and talk it lightly and say it's not a big deal. But your sin is rebellion. You've rebelled against God. And not only that, this rebellion is as bad as witchcraft. He's trying to get Saul to understand the seriousness of what he's done. Saul is taking his sin lightly. And God says, no, it's not a light thing to disobey your God. And then the end of that verse, Samuel says, you rejected the word of the Lord. And now he has rejected you from being king. Here's the consequence. You're no longer, longer going to be king over Israel. Number five, we see Saul's acquiescence. After he hears this, after this whole discussion, after he's perpetuated this lie and this story over and over again, now he hears the consequences and notice what he says now in verse 24. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord and thy words because I feared the people and obeyed not their, and I obeyed their voice. He acquiesces and he says, okay, you got me. I've sinned. But there's still the caveat. It was the people. It wasn't what I wanted to do, but I was afraid of them. So is this genuine repentance? And I would say, no, I don't think it is. Let's give some evidence that we see here of false repentance. Evidence that this is simply regret and not repentance. Number one, he was quick to blame other people. Three times in the passages, he blames the people. He throws them under the bus in order to make himself look better. And yet he was responsible and he was involved. True repentance takes personal responsibility. Number two, he minimized the sin. Okay, fine, I did that, but it's not that big of a deal. His actions were intentional, not accidental. And even if it was just partial obedience, that's not good enough for God, even though it was good enough for Saul. And Samuel's emphasis on rebellion was intended to shock Saul into seeing the truth about his sin. And so we could say it this way, true repentance understands the seriousness of our sin and it sees it as, as God sees it. So he was quick to blame others. He minimized his sin. Number three, he tried to justify his sin. Look, I was just trying to get animals to offer sacrifices. Aren't my motives right? I think it's a reminder that it's never right to do wrong even to get a chance to do right. We can't do wrong with the opportunity thinking, well, this will help me to do something that's right for God. It doesn't work that way. And in reality, even if they were keeping these animals for sacrifices, who was that really going to benefit? The people. They wouldn't have to take animals from their own flocks and their own herds. They could use these instead. It still had selfish motivation written all over it. And then he attempted to cover that sin with piety. True repentance doesn't justify sin. Number four, he magnifies the people's part and minimizes his own part. They did it. I wanted to destroy everything, but they're the ones that made me uh, not obey the voice of the Lord. But the one I want to focus on just a little more is probably the most striking statement, and we haven't even read it yet. But we see that he was more concerned about his own reputation than he was his disobedience. Look down in verse 30. After Samuel has said that God's going to take the kingdom from you, and there's an illustration of that in the text. In verse 30, Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, among the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again unto me that I may worship the Lord thy God. Honor me now among the elders of the people. What's he saying here? He just wants to save face. God, I know I've sinned. I know the kingdom's going to be taken away, but let's just, let's just pretend like everything's okay. I don't want the people to get wind of this. Can we just keep this between you and me? 
Let's act like nothing's wrong. He's more concerned about what the people think than about what God thinks. There's no sorrow over the sin. And this, my friends, is just regret. It's interesting that Samuel evidenced more sorrow over Saul's sin than Saul did. That verse that we saw earlier in the chapter was Saul was up all night crying and mourning over that sin. Look down at verse 35. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul and for his sin. Well, let's not fall into the trap of confusing regret with repentance. When we sin, is there going to be regret? Absolutely. But it can't stop there. It's got to continue on until it gets to the point of true repentance. We've got one more to look at here, and I'll try to cover this quickly. I know with Communion Sunday, it takes a little bit longer for everything to happen. Uh, but this, one is, this one's pretty critical. Let's go ahead and get to this one, number four. Mourning is not remorse. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. We're at the tail end of Christ's life, and you guys know the story here, so I'm not going to belabor that point of it. Uh, but in Matthew chapter 26, down in verse 14, we see then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me that I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver, and from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Judas comes to the chief priest and says, You want Jesus? I can get him for you. What will you give me in exchange? And so he purchases the, the life of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and he agrees to betray the Lord. We look down now in chapter 26 and in verse 47. While he yet spake, they're in the garden now. Uh, they've gone through the Lord's Supper ceremony, the, the Passover. They're now in the garden. And Jesus has prayed for a couple of hours. And at the end of that, while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude of swords and staves from the chief priests and elders. And he that betrayed him gave him a sign, saying, Whomever I will kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus, and he said, Hail, Master. And he kissed him. He betrayed his Messiah with a kiss. And so he betrayed his Lord. We see that first. But as the story goes on, he soon sees the results of this action. And we see this in chapter 27. Look down in verse 3. And Judas, when he had betrayed him, and when he saw that he was condemned repented himself and brought the 30 pieces of silver back. He saw that Jesus was condemned. He saw the end result of what he'd done. It wasn't just Jesus on trial anymore. It was Jesus uh, set to go to the cross. And at that point, he saw those results, and he was grief-stricken. And there's emotion playing through this story that we don't necessarily see as easily here, but you can totally understand what he's feeling at this point. He saw the results of his sin. He was grieved by his sin. And it says in verse 3, he repented himself. And he brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. And he went and hanged himself. So he betrayed his Lord. He saw the results of his sin. He was grieved by the, what happened. And it says he repented and it says he confessed. And in a sense, he actually made restitution, didn't he? He took the money and he, he gave it back. And outwardly, it would appear that Judas repented. In fact, I think he often did more, he did more than we often do to demonstrate his sincerity. But my question is, what, Ju is what Judas did here was that genuine mourning over sin. Was it true biblical repentance? And I don't think it is. Let's look at some evidence of false repentance here in this passage. Number one, his sorrow emerged only after seeing the results of his actions. 
That's when the sorrow came. Now, I want to be careful here because we are going to experience sorrow for the actions and the consequences of our sin and what that brings in the life of other people. Uh, That can prompt us to repentance or not. Uh, In the life of David, it did. Number two, it says he repented himself. That's a very interesting expression. Did you catch that when we read through there? It didn't just say he repented. It says he repented himself. It's a different word for repentance than what we normally see. It's the idea of not so much a change of mind and a change of heart, but an emotional response to intense guilt. He repented himself. He was emotionally broken because of his guilt. It's not a change of heart. It's the experience of remorse. That's what he's feeling. Number three, he confessed. But he didn't confess to God. He confessed to the priests. If you look through this passage, we see no interaction between Judas and his God. How is that different from David in Psalm 32 and in Psalm 51, where his whole conversation is between him and God? Here it's between Judas and the priest. He confessed to them. He said, I've sinned. That's confession. But he confessed to the priest, to the people. He did not confess to God. And then number four, he made restitution. His sorrow, however, was motivated by guilt an emotional response to what he had done. And so in that moment, he takes the money and he throws it back on the floor in an attempt to relieve his guilty conscience. But then we see how the story ends. Racked and ravaged by guilt, he finally goes and takes his own life. He hangs himself. Is that the indication of one who's truly repented and experienced the comfort of forgiveness of God? No, it's not. He tried to pay for it himself. I wrote down it's a final act of penance. And folks, that's what penance is. It's making personal payment, trying to atone for my own sin. He repented of himself, and then he tried to pay for it himself. And this is subtle. But I look back in my life, and I can see times where I've sinned, and my sin affected another person And I had grief in my heart over what I've done. I felt terrible. The guilt was there. And I did take it to the Lord and tried to repent. But then I also tried to make up for it. I tried to do all these things to fix it and to make it better and make the other person feel better. And what I was motivated by was this idea of penance. And it's got it all wrong. We sang a song today, Jesus paid it all. What does that include? Every sin that I've ever committed. Jesus paid for my sin so that I don't have to. And in reality, I can't pay for it at all, no matter how hard I try. No matter how much penance I want to try to offer. So in a sense, penance is a subtle form of pride. It's like, I can do it. I can find some way to fix this. I can make this better. I can atone for this. And the answer to that is, no, you can't. And no, I can't. Because as I try to make good for my sin on my own, what am I doing? I'm rejecting the forgiveness of God. I can't try to take care of my sin myself and still be forgiven by God at the same time. So is there mourning going on in this passage? Absolutely there is. Judas is is grief-stricken for what has happened. And we just read, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And if he's mourning, then my question to you is, where is the comfort? It's missing. And from that, I take the fact that he didn't truly repent of his sin. Remorse is so closely connected to repentance, but it's still a false repentance. And this can creep into our lives if we're not careful as well. And it can do it in a variety of ways. Anytime my mind goes to penance, I'm missing an element of true forgiveness. 
Anytime I try to solve it and try to fix it and try to take care of it, I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive to do better after we sin. I'm not saying that at all. And we shouldn't try to, to go and, and make it right with the person that we've hurt. That all needs to be there. But if that's all I'm doing to solve that problem and I'm doing it on my own in my own strength, I'm missing something here. It can creep in when I say something to the effect of that what I did was so bad I could never be forgiven. Or what I did was so bad I just can't forgive myself. And I beat myself up over sins of the past. I'm claiming that God's blood, Jesus' blood, is not powerful enough to forgive me of that sin. I'm putting myself in a place that I don't want to be. Sometimes we can acknowledge that what we did was wrong and then just kind of feel like we're going to pay for that sin for the rest of our lives. And that's not a biblical concept either because God does not hold our sins over our heads. That's not what forgiveness is. That's not what God does. I think that's what Judas was feeling. Like he was going to hold that over his head for the rest of his life and he just had to take his life and that's the only way he could atone for it. Oh, my friends, it's a serious misunderstanding of forgiveness and an evidence that remorse is maybe all that took place. There was no true repentance because I'm focusing more on the sin than I am on my Savior who wants to forgive. It reveals that my gaze is in the wrong place. Let's be careful here because remorse and repentance look an awful lot alike. Boy, you just walk through the steps of what Judas did and it looks, wow, he just checked off every single box except the last one. Let's be careful that we don't settle for remorse and never experience the comfort that comes from true forgiveness. So let's ask the question this way. If you confess your sins but don't experience lasting comfort from the Lord, it's likely that you didn't truly repent. Now, there's other factors, and we're going to talk through this a little bit more in a message to come, because there's other things involved. When we, when we confess our sin and God forgives, the conviction is gone. Sometimes the guilt remains. I'll, I'll grant that. But where's that guilt coming from? It's not coming from God. It's coming from Satan. And so that may be a factor in the mix here, too, and I want to say that up front. But it's something that it's important that we think about and that we face in our own lives. Let's, let's purpose over the course of this week to respond properly through biblical repentance, not through these four aspects of false repentance that we just saw today. Let's deal biblically with it. And if there's something in the past that, God, that just keeps coming back to your mind and you struggle with that guilt, let's find a way to deal with that biblically too. Because God doesn't want us to live that way. He wants us to live in peace and in freedom. He came to set us free. The Son will set you free. You'll be free indeed. And that's just not talking about sin for salvation. That's talking about every sin that's in our lives. He can give us that freedom. I love Psalm 86, verse 5. I put that, I think, in your notes. Thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy to all who call upon him. Let's be careful that we don't settle for any of these four aspects of false repentance because that's not living in light of the forgiveness that God offers. Perhaps you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You know what we've been talking about is for believers, it's kind of maintenance-level forgiveness and repentance, isn't it? I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ, but that relationship's been broken, the fellowship's been broken, and so now I need to restore that. But if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you don't need that maintenance level. You need the relationship level. You need to come to Jesus Christ that once-for-all time where you say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've sinned against you. But I also know that you died on the cross to pay for that sin, and I'm going to accept that gift of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to accept your eternal life as a gift. And when we take that and we claim that, now there's a relationship. Jesus says you've been born again. You're now a son or a daughter, a child of God. You're born into his family. And at that point, there's some things to maintain and a different way of looking at repentance and forgiveness. 
Oh, my friends, let's think about this. Let's allow God to examine our hearts. If you're here without Christ, please come to him today. If there's an aspect, maybe a false repentance that you've struggled with in the past, let's deal with that as well. God wants us to have freedom to live the life that he wants us to live, and he can accomplish that if we'll accept the comfort of his forgiveness. Father, I thank you for the passages we've looked at today. Father, these scriptures are are clear, and the analogies are there. The pictures are vivid. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to experience true repentance so we might experience true forgiveness. And Lord, if there's someone struggling with that today, I pray that you'd bring that to their mind and make it clear. Lord, next week as we look a little closer at what uh, true repentance and true mourning really does look like, Lord, help us to come back for the second side of the story so we can truly understand it. Lord, I thank you so much that you convict us of sin, but you don't do it in such a way that leaves us racked with guilt for the rest of our lives. Father, you offer comfort through the Holy Spirit and through the cleansing of forgiveness. My Father, I pray that we'd claim that today in Jesus' name. Amen.